Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Panadol. Panadol made in Ireland. Contains paracetamol. Always read the label. Hello, good morning. How are you? Not that you asked, but I'm going to tell you anyway. The working week of a playback presenter starts in earnest on a Sunday morning when Brendan O'Connor assembles the great and the good in his studio to listen to him. Just kidding, Brendan. And there I was, present and correct at 11am with my notebook in my hand, when literally the very first words that I heard as I turned on the radio were these from Alison O'Connor. No, I suppose we should start by saying if you're looking for a bit of a lift this morning, stay away from the papers. Yes. <laughs> now I know Alison of old. She is wise. And after listening to the programme for an hour, I concluded that she was also right. You stay away from the papers. Yes. <laughs> so to raise the national mood first thing this morning, let us momentarily park all of our assorted cost of living, energy, inflation, climate crises and dip our toes into the radio highlight pool of the vast amount of other human achievement and activity pouring out of your wireless this week. So Ireland with this free kick, about uh, 10 metres inside the finish half, and Lily Yang has got her head to it, keeper at Kane Carpala, and it's in the back of the net, and Ireland have caught a break here at Tallis Stadium, and they lead by a goal to nil. Free kick, and it's headed in, 1-0 Ireland, Lily Yang arriving on the scene, beating the keeper to it and it's Ireland 1 Finland nil. At the risk of jinxing it because we're not quite there yet it really looks like the women are bringing us to a World Cup. Des Cahill asked manager Vera Pau what she had said to the team in the dressing room after their win over Finland on Thursday. I, I wanted to say something to, to the girls but I entered the tra- that dressing room and I better left <laughs> it was just there was no way to have one moment of silence so uh, we left it until on the bus and uh, and here in the hotel and, and what did you say to the players well <clears throat> of course this is a journey that uh, um, that we were dreaming about and uh, to have secured a playoff place um, even a game before the end um, is something that is unbelievable uh, this group uh, came from very far but uh, has still so far to go um, and I want to highlight that it all began uh, years ago eh, with uh, people investing and on the moment that nobody saw them um, paving the path for us Soccer pundit Lisa Fallon picked up on what Vera hinted at there. The fact that this World Cup playoff has been achieved in large part by the women who took a stand off the pitch in 2017 when they threatened to strike. For too long in this country, I think it's been too difficult for females to have um, the same opportunities in sport as as lads. And I think the, the testament and the strength of that group to have the courage to stand up and say we deserve better um you know like as Vera said the the players now stand on the shoulders of the people who you know dug in and had to you know do the stuff the hard stuff at that time when it was difficult to do it um but they did it and because they believed in their potential and they believed in their right to have the same opportunities and and the same facilities and the same resources um and that's that should never be compromised um and and those values and those morals and that belief that they had is you know it it, it was so important at that time and i think a lot of the players last night really acknowledged that um but it's 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 such a joy for 
I'm sure all those players who did that and people who've gone before them to see these players getting the benefits of that and showing that that battle was really so worthwhile because now you can see what really can be done when girls are given the same opportunities as boys. Lisa Fallon on Morning Ireland. Further calls for celebration this week. Did you know that the greatest competitive axe-throwing female human being in the world at the moment is from Sligo? Kiola McGowan is her name and dismiss your preconceptions right now of what the greatest female axe thrower in the world should be. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, I laugh because it's still kind of not real. <laughs> yeah, like and you were up against the best in the world, weren't you? Yeah, actually, um, the way the finals worked out was that there was, um, you got down to six competitors, three throws, lowest score knocked out. You continue down the line until you're just left with two. And the person that I was actually throwing against was the female world champion at the time, Anki Hepberg. So <laughs> it was quite intense. Yes. And, and she would have been favoured, I would imagine, would she? Oh, yes. yes. Very highly so. Kyoto told Ray Darcy how a fellow student introduced her to the sport. Yeah, I'm off to the woods tonight, throw axes with a bunch of hairy, smelly, sweaty men. And I was like, you're off to do what, where, who? And can anybody do this? And that was kind of it. Then I jumped in my car, drove up the up, up to the Wicklow Mountains and never looked back. <laughs> and you obviously found that you had a, a skill, a talent when it came to throwing axes. Uh, well, we got got down to the barn and the, the axes, they look really intimidating. They feel quite heavy and you kind of pick it up and you're like, oh my God, am I really going to put this thing over my head and throw it down 20 yeah. feet into a, a wall-mounted target? It's kind of like, am I really just about to do this? So there's like the buzz of that, the high of when you actually do it. And then when you kind of get into the groove, it actually really becomes so meditative. The, the sound of the axe hitting the target, that, that kind of thunk, it's almost kind of heartbeat. It's really, yeah, no, there's just, there's no other kind of feeling in the world like it. Right. We, we heard that there. Here's another one. That sounds like a cartoonish <laughs> one, doesn't it? Here we go. It, it doesn't make that sound as it moves through the air, does it? <laughs> well, apparently one of the girls, <laughs> I would have a quite a, it's very slow to start throw, but once I'm kind of locked in, I would quite, I'd throw oh, quite you? fast. Yeah. And then I have heard the girls beside me say, it's kind of like, I can hear that whoosh as right. it's leaving your hand. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. I'm, I'm, Depending I'm, if it catches the wind correct, correct, the right way. Mary Ellen McGrorty is another Irish woman to be celebrated. The Donegal woman is still in Afghanistan, making a very meaningful difference in the lives of hundreds of thousands of people there with her work for the United Nations World Food Programme. She has to negotiate safe passage for truckloads of food for starving Afghans. So what's it like for her trying to carry out those negotiations with the Taliban as a woman? They naturally defer to the interpreter or to any men that you have with you. Well, one thing she says is that at the meetings, you have to take the space. It's really about taking that front seat and being assertive in that front seat without being brash or anything, you know, just being being respectful. You know, some of them, I have to say, it's like talking to your old grandfather, right? You know, so they're very softly spoken and everything else and others that are a little bit more threatening. And each one is different, huh? I mean, I had one, he's only got one eye. He wanted me to move so that I wouldn't be in his line of sight of his good eye, right? You know what I mean? So this 
different things like that that they don't want to be looking at you directly. And but yet you can see if you look from under the scarf, you can actually see them looking at you, right? <laughs> And then the fact that I tell them, you know, I was here on the 15th of August and I stayed on the 15th of August and I stayed throughout. They go, you did? I said, yes, I was here. And then they suddenly think, okay, yeah, they they sort of open up a little bit more to talk to you. So the fact that we've had a presence and we maintain that presence has given us a little bit of a, um, a shoe-in. So I had a brief glimpse of just such a shoe-in when I was working in Kabul last November. Hospital closed. I was recording a protest at the health ministry when I was invited in to have an interview with the Taliban Minister for Health, Dr. Bad. Along with other Taliban figures, he was on this sort of charm offensive at the time. They wanted to convince foreign press that sanctions should be lifted, because they said the new Taliban regime was different from the last one. So Dr. Abad said that part of his job was to convince his staff of this, particularly the female staff. I sit with them, I talk with them and uh, tell them to now there is a peace and a calm. We have a respect for you, all of you. And especially, especially, I talked with the female staff. They must come to their jobs and they are secured by every means. Such a reassuring tone allowed some Afghans to hope. Um, what grade are they in? For example, a day or so later, I spoke with three teenage girls who were not allowed to attend school at the time. Even though their school had been bombed a few months previously and over 80 people had been killed, these girls were desperate to go back to education. In, in August, what was it like hearing that they weren't allowed to go to school? It was very difficult and it was very terrible. Okay. okay. And do their parents think that they'll be allowed to go back to school in January? Mm. Uh, he said that my parents is hopeless that, and they say for her that uh, you may not continue a lesson more than this. And how did it feel when she heard them say that? She said that I didn't care to my parents' speech and I am hopeful that I can continue my lessons. From Hannah McCarthy's documentary on One, the Taliban and Me. Amidst the train wreck that is the housing crisis, Ashling Maloney brought us a story on Tuesday's Morning Ireland of a beautiful new friendship. Pensioner Marion and master's student Stella formed thanks to an initiative encouraging empty nesters to offer student digs under the rent-a-room scheme. I heard on the radio the, the government were talking and asking people to rent rooms out. Marion Clossie is a pensioner living in Castle Connell, which is about 10 kilometres from the University of Limerick. And I thought... Well, I don't have to live on my own now in this big house. I didn't want uh, to have to pay tax and get accountants and any of that stuff, no. And I really only wanted somebody to be here in the house with me as well. So after like two months plus, I started looking into Nina and Ennis and Shannon. I know it was... (laughs) I um, saw the room on dab.ie. I sent a mail and um, I got a response. um, And then I was supposed to feel like a form. And like talk about myself, who I am and why I need the place. So I did that to give like a bio of myself and everything. And then um, I came on that day and I was like, oh my God, this is so beautiful. And she was actually, she was nice. She was welcoming. It feels more like I'm at home. 
She says at first she was apprehensive about renting a room and living with the homeowner, but she says she has found a friend in Marion. Oh, we're getting on so well. And she livens up the house. She's singing, going around. She is just lovely. Marion says other older people in her position with empty rooms should think about renting too. You could do what I'm doing now and have somebody stay with you. Um, All these empty bedrooms and spare rooms... You know, why not? Stella and Marion, Mary Ellen and Keola, Lisa and Vera. All further evidence, gentlemen, for my theory that the place would be much better run if we just stepped aside. Further calls for Irish celebration aboard NASA's new super rocket Artemis 1, the first step in taking humankind back to the moon, hopefully later on today. It'll be doing so with the aid of live video conferencing technology between astronauts and Earth, thanks to a company in Galway, as Leo Enright brought to our attention. There's a fascinating new teleconference system that they're launching to test aboard this mission where the astronauts in future will be able to do live video conferencing like you or I can do at home. And that's part of the software for that was developed in Oran Moore in Galway. And when human beings were last on the moon in 1972, Ireland just stood back and watched in open-mouthed awe. But in 2022... There are literally hundreds of Irish wannabe space cadets saying, yeah, I'll give that a go. We have an astronaut programme in Europe. In fact, they're they're, they're recruiting right now, 2022, 278 Irish people applied. Uh, We we won't know for another few months who's chosen, whether one of those is Irish. But Irish people have applied. And if they're chosen, they'll go to the moon. Now, talk of space travel is always tempered by discussion of whether the money would be better spent back here on Earth. But space lecturer Kevin Nolan encouraged Ray Darcy to think of the space programme as a catalyst to technical innovation and a way of raising everybody's horizons. All of the money spent on this uh, leads to innovation. I'll give you one statistic. Okay. 70% of the chip design in America and was put into the Apollo program and it accelerated their chip design by 10 years. Ireland got their first computer company digital in the 70s and Intel and Leakzip in 89. That wouldn't have happened had it not been for Apollo. They literally accelerated chip design a decade. So... We, and we can go all around, you know. The, 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 yeah. the, the I suppose. I suppose the thing that, that, that so it's fifty years on, and you know yeah. the, the world hasn't stopped turning because nobody's been on the moon in yeah. those fifty years. Uh, so, so now with, well, it's, it's he, the next level. So it's it's about people living on the moon. Perma- it's a permanent presence in deep space, right. and you know that's a societal thing. That's like very often you you might say, "Am I delighted?" I, I'm interested in this because it's a positive human story, not because I like space. Yes. And what what I often say, even getting back to the other innovation thing, is other things that innovate, we innovate on are things like war or pandemics. Yes. This is, a, I, I believe, a, a positive human story. And secondly, as we get older, you're right, you've talked about the Artemis generation. Like, we've new young people who are ambitious and excited and want to explore. And they're the ones driving this, yeah. you know. I started thinking this week that academics get to have all the fun. Wait for this. It turns out that there is a Venom lab in Galway. And what do they do in the Venom lab? Well, they organise death matches between native Irish spiders and the invasive species, the false widow spider, all in the name of science. The false widow's venom is 230 times more poisonous than any Irish spider's. But for absolute entertainment value, 
Just listen to Claire Byrne veer wildly between fascination and dread throughout this interview with Dr Michelle Dugan. And you have watched it in a battle scenario with native species. How does it behave? What does it do? It can project its silk, so use its back legs to actually project its its silk and then kind of cage its opponents and then bite it and inject venom into it. Uh, In some other cases, we know that if it doesn't have much venom, it will actually avoid confrontation and will come for confrontation later once it has more venom available. What does it kill? Is it mostly just other spiders? It can take down a large variety of prey and that includes most bugs that you would find uh, in Ireland, including most type of spiders and then occasionally we have seen them also so feeding on uh, lizards, we have seen them feeding on a bat, we have recently found one feeding on a fruit, so on a rodent, so they're capable of taking down pretty large prey compared to their own size. Mm -hmm. How many of them are there here? It's not possible to count them anymore. There are millions of false widows in the country. Oh, Um, great. (laughs) They've they've arrived about 25 years ago or so, and uh, they are incredibly successful at establishing new colonies. Claire Byrne and Dr. Michelle Dugan. And if the winter ahead sounds as dreadful as millions of false widow spiders, can I recommend the county measure as the perfect antidote? Vincent Woods continues ferreting out people with a love of place on his round island ramble. And last Sunday, composer Chris Falconer's affection for his native Waterford was palpably sincere. So when I went away, it was still, you know, 2010s, so things hadn't completely changed in Ireland and, you know, globally, economically and things like that. And I'd grown up with all these great art shows on in Waterford, like Spree or Garter Lane being available to people, Theatre Royal, and we had great gig venues like The Forum and Electric Avenue. And then when I came back to Waterford in 2013, 2014, a lot of those had closed. A lot of the events had kind of been scaled back. The city itself could have, kind of felt a economic shock from loss of places like Waterford Crystal a factory which would have been both a tourism pull as well as a generational job opportunity in Waterford. But then over the last 10 years, I've seen Waterford do what it does best and make cultural and festival situations to bring people back. There was a medieval museum developed, there was the Bishop's Palace was restored. Spree was just on this weekend, the best I remember for years, especially the fireworks at the end. We've got food festivals now, we've got uh, at Christmas time, you know, we've got Winterville, all these things. So I think Waterford really decided, okay, we've been hit with some bad luck, so let's make it ourselves again and bring ourselves back up onto the, the table of interest. Would you spend much time out of, of the city? County Water is incredible. I, I mean, you've got the sea on one end, you've got mountains on the other, you've got these monuments that are, are from Celtic times through to Viking times. A lot of my generation moved home, a lot of my friends moved home because they chose that this is a this is a fantastic place with, like, you know, opportunities in tech, opportunities in culture, and then on your driveway you've got beautiful sandy beaches. I'm so happy to be here and it's great to be able to say that as someone who would have at one stage wanted to live somewhere else as well, you know. You love your place, don't you? I do. Uh, I'm happy to be here and I'm going to stay here. Good. Good story. Chris, thanks a million. Thanks a million. From the county measure, 
Second Captain Sundays continues its celebration of the fondly remembered sporting failures of some of our more celebrated sons and daughters. On Sunday, it was the turn of actor of the moment, Brian Gleeson, of the Gleeson acting Monopoly stroke family fame. Brian enjoyed one glorious season on one of Malahide United's schoolboy D teams. We were, God, we were just really routinely smashed every week, kind of 8-0, you know, 9-0. 10-1 sometimes, uh, but we did we did draw one game, I think it was against Hull Celtic. I mean, the scenes of jubilation on that, on that <laughs> final whistle. <laughs> Serious, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What particularly caught my ear, though, was his impression of his dad, Brendan Gleeson, already a national treasure, as we know, but revealed on second captains as one of the most diplomatic of parents. At one point, I kind of fancied myself as a, as a bit of a midfield general, and um, I remember Dad came to one of the games, and obviously I was putting on even even more of a show. And uh, you know, I even at home I had the United Man United jersey with Gleeson in the back, sixteen. You know, uh, so for this game I thought I'd be a midfield general, even though I was supposed to be playing left back. But I kind of wandered over towards the, the centre mm. of the pitch. Uh, <laughs> I kind of was bellowing out instructions left, right, and centre, and. Uh, yeah, obviously we lost the game and uh, uh, Dad was driving me home and it was quiet, it was a quiet car and he was like, Brian, you know, I just think it's important, you know, in his own lovely way, I just, I just think it's important that, you know, you just, you take care of your own game first before you start uh, <laughs> issuing instructions to the rest of the team. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, I mean, yeah. like, there are ways to lead, you know, there, there, there are leaders who lead by, by deed and by action. And then there are others who lead with their with their words, you know. And it, but it didn't do a lot of good. The words didn't do, do any good either. But, uh, but that was you your know, teammates fault, you know. Absolutely. They just, they, the message was being delivered, but uh, there was nobody home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yes, folks, Alison O'Connor was right. The news headlines have not been uplifting this week. But thankfully, we live in a country that is also a place of warrior aid workers, spider deathmatch referees and footballing failures turned acting greats that fill our airwaves. Welcome back. Now, it is the job of grown-up journalists to choose their words carefully. Use the superlatives sparingly because there might be no words left to use when things eventually get worse than they are. But on Monday, Brian Dobson and our economics correspondent Robert Short could really only find one word for the cost of electricity right now. News from Germany today that the wholesale price there, the megawatt per hour level, that's the, the way it's calculated, um, has, has breached through, I mean, I, I can hardly believe I'm saying this, but a thousand euro per megawatt hour. You know, it's it's become a bonkers situation. Just to, uh, by way of comparison, last year, uh, the prices in Europe were about 85 euro per megawatt hour. Two years ago, they were about 50 euro per megawatt hour. So the price of uh, power really uh, reaching stratospheric levels and it's bonkers. Drive Time drove the point home by talking to the man from price comparison website bonkers.ie. Gas is at absolutely astronomical levels in wholesale markets. It's increased over the past maybe 18 months by up to 1,000%. Just to put things into perspective, when we had the energy crisis back in the 1970s, the price of a barrel of oil went up by around 300 to 400%. But we have only, if you could even use that word, seen price increases of maybe 100%. So that just goes to show you what we could possibly be in for unless gas um, you know, comes back down in price very, very soon. 
And wait till you hear about Geraldine Dolan's bonkers electricity bill in Poppy's Cafe in Athlone. I worked out the increase, Geraldine, is 426% on your ESB bill. It's crazy, Joe. Absolutely crazy. Give us the figures. The figures from the bill I got yesterday, which nearly killed me over, €9,836.92. Geraldine was paying 14 cents a unit. Now she's paying 45 cents a unit. Bonkers. But fear not, consumers of kilowatt hours. Help is at hand in the form of an army of live line experts, the boomers and their parents who lived through multiple energy crises in the 1970s. They know a thing or two about conservation, let me tell you. People, what, yeah. what are your plans for the winter? I'm going to get a big jacket and a mm. hat, a furry hat and mm. a new pair of slippers and I'll, and wear, I'll wear a double slippers like they do okay. in the Arctic. And, <laughs> and are you cutting back on anything at the minute? You're trying to reduce your... I can't your... cut any more. Double slippers. Put it on your winter-ready list, people. Joe, it's just something very simple. When you um, boil potatoes and you turn the, the gas cooker on, yeah. right? what saves a lot of energy is you actually boil the kettle of water and put your six or eight potatoes into the pot. Yeah. Throw the boiling water into the potatoes, turn on your gas, yeah. let it come to a boil for about five minutes, okay. leave it there, half an hour later, potatoes are done. And it prevents you from leaving the gas on for... 20 minutes, a half an hour Good to steam point. up okay. the whole this, house. Now, Brendan, this is tried and tested. Tried and tested for sure. That was Brendan. Okay, if you any other tips while you're there, Brendan? What do you think? Do you think that there is any remote chance that Brendan might have a few more ideas? I think Brendan might have been waiting for this moment since the 1979 oil crisis. Well, now, Joe, I'll tell you. I had no before for years. Yeah. Now, I'm out of getting a log boner in. I'm literally burning five times less fuel and I get five times more heat. Margaret's mum used to repurpose the kettle at breakfast time. My mum would make the tea and then when the tea, she had made the tea, she'd put the the egg, the uncooked egg, into the kettle and um, cook his egg. But is there, are they free range eggs? I don't know. What the big, what the bits of feathers and dirt on them? Ah, soft-boiled presenter, more like. It's only a bit of a feather, Joe. Philip Lynch then called Joe direct from 1947 with an idea for how the cows might be milked if there was no electricity for the parlours. I'll have to guarantee. But there's no power. I'll have to guarantee the dairy farmer he's not going to be cut. But there's no power. Unless he's going to do, like in 1947, we brought people out from the towns, is he going to send out the civil service to pull tits as we used to do long ago? I don't know, is he? And then are they going to come out Saturday and Sunday as well? It doesn't stop, you see, it's Friday. By now, Joe was wholeheartedly embracing the dawning of this new age of miserable frugality, warming up to the idea of a world in which all tea bags would be used multiple times, just like in his favourite boys' movie. I'm thinking of Donald Pleasance in The Great Escape. Remember the fella, little fellow with the glasses, the forger in The Great Escape? Yeah. And his trick was he used to... Now, they, now they were in a POW camp, prisoner of war camp, Elizabeth. But his trick was he'd use the tea bag, and then he'd hang the tea bag up to dry and then he'd use it again. Are you, are you doing that? 
Yeah, I put it into, I have a little container and okay. it's actually a ceramic container. Yeah. And um, the next time I have tea, I will just reuse it. Okay. And you're not digging a tunnel under your kitchen to try and escape from the house, eh? <laughs> no. <laughs> However, folks, the top tip, the one you've never heard anywhere else that flies in at you from left of field, but has an undeniable and brilliant logic to it, that award goes to Mary. I used my car parked in the driveway as my clothes area. I got rid of my tumble dryer 35 years ago. Okay, so so, uh, what have you got, a lot of lines in your car? There's the sun coming in through the glass window in screen, the yeah. back window, the side windows, airs the car. Plus, your car smells lovely and fresh from the fabric conditioner. And where do you hang, uh, the, cl- where do you hang the clothes in the car? Well, on the dash, I put up the smalls and on the back window... Then I get clothes hangers and I hang the shirts and the blouses and all that. Okay. And on the back seats and my clothes are lovely and aired. And one of my daughters now told me she's taken up the tip as well. But you don't, Mary, you said you keep you, you, you dry your smalls on the on the back of the shelf. But you hardly drive around Cork with your knickers on the back window, I, do you? I can tell you, come here to me, they were like, we're on Cork with no knickers last weekend. <laughs> so I saw, saw that. <laughs> Easily one of the two most absorbing interviews on Radio of the Week was playwright and actor Emmett Kerwin. Emmett, one of Tala's most famous sons, told Brendan O'Connor how he had now been transplanted to Bray in Wicklow and had very nearly become homeless just two weeks before the birth of his first child. So people that have been living as renters have been very aware of the housing crisis and that's why there's a lot of anger, I think, about about the housing crisis because there's this kind of two-handed gesture of, oh, we can't believe the housing crisis has gotten so bad. It's like, no, you can, because there's been marches about it as far back as 2014, 16, 17, 18. This is not something that is just Is it because it went from being maybe a kind of a class thing to being now a whole generational thing? Absolutely. Is that it, like that the, the children of the Fine Gael voters cannot now get That is exactly yeah. what it is. It's that thing, you know, when COVID kicked off, they're like, you see the, eff- you s- I used to believe that it was a lack of efficacy on the part of government. And I actually see that it's just a, an indifference. Because when COVID happened, you've seen how they, they use the mechanisms of the state. They, they basically move mountains to keep things on the road. As everybody can get COVID. But only poor people become homeless. And that's the difference when an issue is something that affects primarily people on the fault lines of society that they don't they don't believe will even vote for them. They're not going to do anything for them. But now what's happening is middle class voters are finding that their children cannot um, find homes. Their grandchildren are growing up in Vancouver with different accents. They they want people to come home from who have grad, like emigrated years ago. They want them to come back, but there's nothing to come back to because the most pressing thing has always been housing, and it's just been left. And this is what happens with artists. You're getting timed out. Even when you're successful, you can still get timed out of it. Go, 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 go on, meaning? As in, you'll have to give it up. You'll really, to, yeah? Yeah, you'll have to get another job. Especially, well, the economy just can't... You know, it's like, what... It's like, you can't get a mortgage as an artist. Okay, so what do I need to do? You need to get a job as something else. So you you find... I'm mean, like, you know, I'm not pouring my heart here, but these are the thought processes that go through all artists' minds. Even for you, who would be viewed at, like absolutely. you've made films, you TV. But, but also, these those things are kind of ephemeral. You know, they exist. Yeah. For, they're successful at that time when you're doing it. 
a play is successful in that moment when you're doing it. But once the play is over, your your revenue stream goes goes away. And you know, like poetry plays, you know, even voice art, they don't pay. You know what I mean? So it's artists. I think on average, and the National Campaign for the Arts will talk about this. That we never talk about money because people are want to have this kind of like veneer of successfulness they want to be seen as being successful because to not be successful is kind of a shameful thing or something yeah. so like artists are constantly like they're, they're, you see them doing well and you think they're doing great but averages on on average artists earn between 8 and 15,000 euros a year the mm. median average wage is 22,000 I think the average industrial wage is 32,000 that's half the average industrial wage mm. nobody can raise a family on that no one. So yeah. there's a constant hustle and the artist Jesse Jones talked about this. There's artists and then they have side hustles and then they might have a second side hustle and a third side hustle. So you're working in multiple different things, not because you want it, just because you have to. But ultimately, there comes a time when you go, am I going to get timed out? And when people have babies, and especially female artists, that happens a lot. You get timed out of the industry and it's like, there's your cards. We really love your work, but no money for it. Yeah, your applause doesn't buy a house. Yeah, okay. that's it. Yeah, yeah. Can't, what's it? Can't, can't pay your rent with kudos, you know. Emmett Kerwin and Brendan O'Connor. Mikhail Gorbachev died this week, the man behind the revolution that ended the Soviet Union without shedding a single drop of blood, a legacy that academic Konstantin Gurdjieff thought immediately invited comparison with the man who now has his job. Putin seems to be respectful of the past uh, office of presidency that Gorbachev held for a very short period of time. Uh, he seems to be kind of, you know, respectful to project enough statehood. What's important is for, for us to understand is that with the death of Gorbachev, this, we, we have yet another nail in the coffin of the moderate um, Russian style, if you want, a liberal um, reformists um, kind of model of political engagement. Um, and what, what that opens for us is not so much even uncertainty as to how Vladimir Putin is going to react, but how is the Russian society going to continue evolving when mm-hmm. one of the major figures in this very moderate, very subtle, perhaps not as visible from the West, but nonetheless opposition to the evolving, if you want, you know, increasing autocracy in Russia, there were many other assessments on Gorbachev's contribution to the politics of the late 20th century, but perhaps the most ear-catching. Then, 10-year-old Anne in County Meath, watching Gorbachev and Reagan sign arms reductions treaties. She told Ryan Tuberty that wasn't as significant as the presence of the port wine birthmark on the forehead of the General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Did somebody look at him and say, oh, wow, and I think I was that little girl that said, oh, wow, um, because I, too, have a birthmark. Well, it's not so evident anymore, but I remember at the time going, isn't that just cool where he's got to in the world and he has a birthmark and ah, it's no big deal. Amazing. That was exactly what I was wondering when I was saying, as a kid watching that, I wonder, did other kids look at him and say, great, it's not just me? Yeah. I did, I did. I just thought, I just thought that was the coolest birthmark in the world and the coolest <laughs> person. And did you get grief? Well, one or two mothers might have called me Quasimodo's missus in school, but, you know, some of them weren't kind, but that's life, you know, unfortunately. Um, and I know I have three children now myself, and I would say that, you know, different is not a bad thing and there's no harm being kind. And I think that's, you know, with parents and things, 
that we need, really need to tell our children that just because somebody's different doesn't mean you need to be unkind to them. You need to include them. You need to be nice. Anyone can help anyone achieve anything and don't discount them because there's something different about yeah. them. I think it's amazing that, that, that the world is watching two men trying to end you know, global Armageddon and there was a 10-year-old in me you know, watching it and going, that birthmark, um, has, could, that could possibly change my life because if he can do it, I can do it. I, it, it that is extraordinary. And life has been good to you. Life has been very good to me. Um, I have a lovely husband, Evan, um, and we work together. He makes and designs stained glass windows. Oh, really? and, and I work with him and these three lovely kids, um, Evie, John and Charles, yeah. Gorbachev's death was a reminder of those monumental forces that sweep across Europe at least once every generation. That was also echoed in Ryan Tuberty's conversation with Tova Friedman, the other most absorbing interview of the week. For Tova, growing up in a Jewish ghetto in Poland and later in Auschwitz was her idea of normal. My first memories at the age of two or two and a half or three when we were in a ghetto and... I really don't have any any knowledge of how people lived normally because from the moment I was a year old, I was flung into the war so that I have memories of being in a very crowded situation. I remember the death of my grandmother who was shot and of people coming and going and disappearing while I was... Uh, sort of living under a table for two reasons, for space, because we were very crowded, and probably for safety. You write kind of shockingly. You say life was a litany of catastrophes, people disappearing, massacres and hunger. Well, but I didn't know there were catastrophes. I thought it was normal. People came, people left, people moved. This constant movement and disappearing of people you knew and knew people took their place because in the ghetto there was never any space so the moment um, somebody else was removed or killed or or moved to a different place another person took their place I I don't know if you need to close your eyes for a moment I do Um, I'm sorry how do you know I'm guessing because I think that's something because you're in London and I'm in Dublin. I'm just guessing that sometimes you need to close it's your eyes. It's pretty good, by the way, not seeing me. Yes, my eyes are closed. Okay. And I'm guessing you have to do that, Tova, because that's your internal intellectual GPS to guide you to the past. Absolutely. Yeah, you're pretty good. You're right. <laughs> uh-huh. And this brings you to, and maybe bring us with you for a moment, if you could, please, to the ghetto. The smells, the sights, the scenes that are confronting this child that you were. Well, it's very hard to take anybody there because it's even hard for me to get back there to imagine. But first, I knew from the time I was a toddler or maybe maybe a little bit older that children were targets and that I had to be hidden and I had to be quiet and I couldn't be seen because they would come and take the children and that the elderly were the targets. So as a child... I was very careful not to be visible. I just sort of instinctively knew it. Or maybe my mother told me I, that I don't remember. And of course, the hunger. And another thing which comes up, I call it the marching of the boots. 
is to hear the German, the army marching outside the windows constantly. And that's engraved in my mind, the stamping of the, the boots outside. Who or what offered you some class of relief from the terror? Well, you know, they were, my parents were with me almost until we went to, uh, to Auschwitz. So they were there for me, my mother, my father. In the beginning, it was my grandmother until she was taken away. But I knew that I, I am safe as long as my parents were with me, especially my mother. Um, and, and not only thing, you see, I thought that that's what life is supposed to be like. So that's what it is. You're Jewish, and that's how Jews live. And that's how Jewish children live. It was part of my culture, you may say. Tova Friedman, the author of The Daughter of Auschwitz. How life in a war zone can become normality was something of a motif this week. This was Brendan O'Connor's conversation with Ukrainian MP Kira Rudik. Yeah, it is. Uh, it seems like a very long 24th of February, like a very long day that never ends and that you really still live in the hope that um, this, this uh, unrealistic, this absolutely um, surreal situation would end. But now people start to realize not only with their brains, but with their hearts that it will not end soon. The war would not end tomorrow. And it's extremely hard and extremely frustrating that uh, uh, that sometimes people just like shocked by this by this feeling. Uh, and again, this is why we need to push harder to help our forces and to to push Russians back. As delicately as possible, Brendan raised the reality with Kira that support for Ukraine in Western Europe had peaked and was slipping as the bonkers electricity bills landed in letterboxes. Kira's answer came in the form of another question. I am worried, of course, because we know that Russian propaganda would, uh, is, is uh, uh, extremely powerful and uh, also it's added with uh, actual pressure. Like People would see this pressure when they will uh, receive their energy bills. The question that I have again is, uh, we are not choosing between the past, like the, the bright past where the energy bills were, were low, and today. We are choosing between something worse and today. So what would happen if uh, uh, the countries that are supporting us right now would stop supporting us? What would happen if Ukraine will fail? Do you think that the energy bills would be lower then? Do you think that um, the crisis that will happen in the center of Europe with uh, the refugees, with the amount of weapons and guns that will flood the Europe from Ukraine in this matter, if Ukraine will become a gray zone, then Ukraine uh, right now is uh, still third largest producer of uh, uh, the grains, wheat, sunflower oil. If we stop doing that and if we will become this gray zone, uh, the uh, countries of Africa and South America will starve and there would be a migration crisis from their side that would again affect uh, all European countries, uh, countries of the world. So a situation will get much worse if we lose. Yeah. Okay. So if you think right now it is bad, it will get worse. Right now we are actually in a, uh, in a, in a position where we still keep 
pushing, still keep fighting, still keep opposing him, and we still have a chance to win. If you take this chance of, from us, then it will be disaster for everyone. Okay, so what I, I hear what what you're saying is you're reframing this the question and the issue here and saying it's not that we are the ones doing you a favor. But right now you're saying you are the ones doing us a favor by by fighting this and holding this back. We are. We are fighting as a shield of the whole Europe right now. Okay. And we are extremely grateful for the support that we are receiving. But I want everyone to understand that this is support that we are using, not for our own sake, but to push back the tyrant who wants to take over and uh, uh, restore the Soviet Union. He was very adamant about that. Kira Rudik talking to Brendan O'Connor. Now, just before I take my leave of you, at a quarter past early yesterday on Rising Time, Shea Byrne, the missing black sock in the white's wash of life, made the following statement. I met Philip Belcher Hayes is doing playback this weekend. He, uh, he just in the corridor, he went, well, don't listen to playback. <laughs> <laughs> Two things for the record. One, that is a terrible impression. Two, I've no idea what he's talking about. He seems to be suggesting that I would be so unprofessional I would use playback to settle personal scores on air. See you there. I'm looking forward to it, Claire. I know. Yeah. I'll be, I've check shirts. Have, have, have you got the boots? boots? What has become apparent recently is that Shayburn thinks presenter gigs are handed out in alphabetical order, which in his mind makes him next in line to take over from Clareburn. The jeans and the, the Stetson. Stetson. You're getting the Stetsons I'm getting for the us. Stetson. You're getting, you're getting Robert Mazel, you know our friend Robert? Yes. The co- yeah, he's doing the Stetsons for us. Great. So. <laughs> Can't wait. And here's one now. We'll all be holding the phones up. We don't have lighters anymore. We'll be holding the phones up. Hence his absolute determination to get her to end her own career for him by singing over Garth Brooks tracks. Never comes. Go for it. Go on. Go sing along with it. Will she know how much I loved her? Everybody join in. It'll try in every way <laughs> to show her every day that she's my only one. Who needs cards? Who needs cards when you have shaver? Morning all. Have a good weekend. You'll have no listeners left. She must face this world. Email today's CB at rte.ie.